computation is a model, but you know, science being an assembly of different ways of thinking about some very complicated things in nature, it's always handy to have some, you know, overarching analogy or better understood system. And so it, it's a very seductive model because if mind isn't computation, what on earth could it be? But there's an entirely different way to think about the role of um, computation in mental life and cognition. Computations are ways of describing complex things in the world in simple, idealised terms. If you're a serious perspectivist, you give up on the question of like asking, well, what is really truthfully, literally going on in the brain? And you admit that you're only going to be able to see things by way of a perspective. So that question, you know, how much is it really computation and how much is something else, you realize that you're not going to be able to answer that. Whenever I worry about it, I think that, you know, I f focus on the, the stuff that... Uh, the, the journey, really, and it's enjoyable, like the, the process of intellectual inquiry, that is the thing which is really, really rewarding and why I got into this in the first place. This is Brain Inspired. Hey, everyone. This is Paul. On today's episode, I have uh, two philosophers who have a background also in neuroscience, Mark Sprevek and Masrita Chiramuta. Uh, Masrita has been on the show before. They're both doing uh, philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Feel free to judge my pronunciation, but I think that they're both acceptable. And our conversation today largely focuses around the topic of the computational approach to the mind. So in some ways, it's a continuation of last week's episode with David Barak and John Krakauer. But today we're talking more about the question of alternative perspectives on approaching the mind. Are there useful alternative perspectives outside of the computational approach? We also discuss some of the history of uh, philosophy of mind, some of those ideas and how they relate to where we are now, and our current approach to the study of the mind. We talk about representations. Uh, the possibility of naturalizing representations, and whether that's even a desirable pursuit. And we start off talking about the relationship between philosophy and science, and whether philosophy and science of the mind are separate things or should be separate, or whether they would be better served, more integrated. So if these kinds of topics and this episode is interesting to you, I would highly recommend checking out the book that Mark Sprevak uh, edited with Matteo Colombo, and Mark contributed uh, to the book as well, as did Masrita. The book is The Routledge Handbook of the Computational Mind from just a couple years ago. And of course, I link to it in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 114, where you can also learn more about Mark and Masrita. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Thank you. You make my world go round as did Mark and Masrita during this conversation. Enjoy. Masrita, um, you've been here before. Uh, Mark has not been here before. So here's the real pressing question. And maybe I don't, I can't really mute uh, Mark's headphones, but who's the better philosopher, uh, Mark or his wife, Michaela Massimi? Yeah, I, I don't 
I think that philosophers can be put on a scale of quantitative goodness. Each is qualitatively good in their own way. Mark, who, whose fault was that, that you married a philosopher? <laughs> <laughs> I've been, yeah, no, I've, been, I've been very lucky. There are not many uh, philosophers out there to choose from. <laughs> I got a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> sorry, you've embarrassed me. <laughs> I don't know what no, to that, say. no, that's okay. I've I've enjoyed reading uh, some of Michaela's work as well. So uh, it'd be it'd be fun to have her on at some point too. Although she focuses more on sort of the physics side, but she's also does a lot with um, perspectivalism and uh, cognitive sciences as, as well. So uh, really interesting stuff. So talking to Michaela has influenced my thinking a lot. So my trajectory's been to start off as kind of a hard bitten what they call realist and um, ah. about mm. computation i think you know it's all just objectively out there and you know and um, uh, there are real facts about what computations the brain forms and so forth and um and talking to michaela and to see the virtues of uh, of perspectival approach and um the um, ways in which you might want to think about different models how different models are used in different circumstances has kind of moved me more towards uh uh, perspectivalism about about this domain. Oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, hopefully we'll come back to uh, pluralism and perspectivalism toward the end. But I, I want to start off with just philosophy uh, in general and history, I guess, because they're really intertwined. And um, y- y- you both appeal to history a lot in your in your philosophy. But Mark, a few years ago, you wrote a piece talking about how philosophy can contribute um, to the sciences. Of the mind, and you actually spell out four ways. And I don't know if we need to step through all all four of those ways, but you know what I'm wondering is how you how you think philosophy is contributing most right now to uh, the philosophy to the sciences uh, of the mind. Yeah, well, um, I hope you don't mind, but I'm, I'm tempted to question sort of a presupposition in that question oh okay uh, okay which is that um there's this thing philosophy which is contributing to this other thing which is the sciences of the mind and so there's a i don't really see that there's a sharp line between um what's going on in philosophy and the mind sciences so a kind of a, a very commonly held picture of the relationship between philosophy and the sciences is that there's this community of scientists who are working in labs and psychology departments neuroscience departments and then over at some other end of the university, there's this kind of uh, strange group of philosophers who are kind of free floating and they're <laughs> looking at what the scientists are doing. And why do they have to be strange? <laughs> well, <laughs> they are, and um, kind of building, you know, building theories about what what scientists are doing. Um, and I think that that's that's kind of a common way in which people conceive of the relationship between philosophy and the sciences. And I think it's actually a really unhelpful model of um, picturing that relationship. So it's a model that naturally prompts the thought that philosophy is kind of a fundamentally different activity from the sciences. And it also prompts the thought that philosophy is probably unnecessary to the sciences. So this Mm. kind of worry was very beautifully expressed by Richard Feynman, when he said in a, in a really cutting remark that um, philosophy of science is about as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. Right. So I just wanted to put that out there as an example of a kind of an unhelpful or a kind of an incorrect model of the relationship between philosophy and the sciences. And if you start off from that model, then you're going to struggle to 
say how philosophy can contribute to the sciences. Masrita, let, let me just ask you right mm-hmm. off the bat: like, Do you do you think that neuroscientists? And I'm just going to put a. Uh, I'm going to keep the divide there between science and philosophy, just for this question. Do you think that a, a neuroscientist would agree with that uh, perspective, or would they see them as more separate? So, would they agree with the Feynman perspective? No, sorry, with with Mark's suggestion that they shouldn't really, they, they're not separate, because that's coming from a philosopher. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't speak for all the neuroscientists out there, um, but I think that the, there is a big division which comes from people that are having a lab and doing that kind of collaborative work, which is, you know, reliant on data and modeling um, and is quite a different culture in terms of conferences and networks from the philosophical ones. So just, you know, in terms of like material and social groupings, there is uh, a difference in kind which maybe gets in the way of scientists, neuroscientists, perceiving what would be some overlap in the interest of inquiry. Um, mm. But at the same time, I think there are also some more like fundamental, more fundamental differences between um, science and philosophy as it's done today in terms of I like to think of the aims of scientific research as being like not only understanding nature but also int- instrumental ones about you know prediction and control and getting translational results which are just not part of philosophy yeah that makes sense Mark sorry I, I cut you off when I asked Masrita that, that question were you going to uh, continue Yes, I agree with what Masvida was saying, and um, so yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna um, sort of consider, you know, what what would be a better model of the relationship between yeah. philosophy and the sciences. And um, so, as a sociological fact, as Masvida was saying, it may well be that you know the people are in are in different places, engaged in different activities, but that doesn't really speak to the question of what if they're you know quite mm-hmm. apart from who's doing what and where. Um, is there actually any difference in the kinds of intellectual inquiries that philosophers engage in versus the scientists? Um, I think that like a better starting point for thinking about the relationship between the two views is the thought that all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, are philosophers. Um, so, I'm, so I'm a big fan of the philosopher Wilfred Sellers. And um, in a 1962, he wrote this very famous statement that the aim of philosophy, abstractly formulated, is to understand how things in the broadest sense of the term hang together in the broadest sense of the term. And in my view, I think Sellers got it exactly right. So philosophical issues aren't marked out by them being, for example, being the study of science or of what scientists are doing. It's rather marked out in terms of the kind of the overall scope and the focus of the inquiry. So when one's kind of doing philosophy or doing philosophical inquiry or making a philosophical contribution, what one's doing is you're kind of taking a step back from some of the details of a particular case or a particular experiment that you're doing in a lab and considering kind of broadly how matters hang together relative to the kind of ambitions and goals that might have motivated the scientific inquiry in the first place. So, you know, on this kind of view, um, this sort of thinking, this kind of big picture thinking or fundamental thinking is in no way an unusual activity in science. So we do it all the time. Um, and it's also something that matters a huge amount to the ultimate success of the scientific enterprise. So on this kind of view where philosophy is about kind of seeing how everything hangs together, um, philosophical work is 
by no means something which is kind of optional or unnecessary or foreign to science. It's, uh, it, it's really a, a strain or a sensibility within scientific thinking. But yeah, a bit if I could um, mm-hmm. come in there. I think that the Sellers' conception of what philosophy is doing does show how it's important for philosophy not to be over-specialized, that we pay a premium for over-specializing, that we miss the big picture in the way that scientists normally benefit from being hyper-focused on like one specific um, mechanism or target of discovery, um, whereas philosophers can afford to be a bit more blurred out, having like a more high-altitude perspective in order to see how things hang together. Um, and sure, scientists can step back and examine those things, but at the same time, there's much more pressure and also rewards for them to be more specialized. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that Sellers quote as well. And I mean, I have to say, you know, th- thinking about that, <laughs> in retrospect, one of the reasons why I um, took the step to leave science, one of the reasons, there are multiple reasons, is that I was not finding, I was not moving fast enough in my conceptual, in the universe of what I wanted to to um, gain in terms of knowledge and the bigger picture. And I did not see a way that I could continue along the lines, as Masrita was saying, of um, needing to write a grant, needing to publish a paper, needing to analyze data in a very specialized manner. I just couldn't see getting out of, off that hamster wheel uh, enough to at least for my own, um, I mean, we all have different levels of needs, right? And, and to, to feel self-satisfied with something. And for my own satisfaction, I I could not see a way that I could cont- continue along that line in an experimental neuroscience lab and still feel like I'm even understand all the big picture aspects, which is a goal of mine personally. So ha- having said that, you know, Masrita, as you, so, so as I've been away from practicing science, I worry a little bit that I'm losing touch with mm-hmm. those sorts of um, questions and how mm-hmm. to ask the scientific kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm floating very much more toward philosophy, which has been extremely enjoyable. And that now I'm making that you know distinction again, which, mm-hmm. as Mark rightly uh, said, is really shouldn't be as blurred or as as distinct as you know we sometimes make it. But but Masrita, do you feel at all like you are? Um, I don't want to say losing touch, but mm-hmm. drifting away from the science, the practice of science, does that worry you at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, cer- certainly it, it does. I mean, in terms of, you know, having the right kind of mindset to write, to answer the right, ask the right kind of pointed questions about a particular technique and all of those um, focused details that scientists really are sharp on, um, like being not spending my time amongst scientists and engaging with those communities as much as I used to it is you yeah. know a skill that gets rusty um so I like to hope that I keep up with it enough to have enough of the details that are relevant for the philosophical writing that I'm doing even if I couldn't go back to the lab and do the like experimental work that I used to do yeah so I don't need to worry about it too much it depends what your your <laughs> tasks are. <laughs> okay, yeah, just making a podcast—that's all. So. Yeah. Can I ask about the the specialization and this? Yeah, this trend towards kind of hyper specialization. Mm-hmm. So this is something which is a pattern all across the sciences that 
individual researchers, particularly young researchers, are incentivized to sort of specialize in smaller and smaller niches and focus on tighter and tighter research questions. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think. If, the, if, this, if this trend has changed somewhat in cognitive neuroscience over, say, the past 20 years or so. So my impression has been um, that um, there's actually a little bit more tolerance for um, asking big questions and big picture thinking. So some some years ago, you know, and thinking back to back to whenever I was an undergraduate in the 1990s, you were studying incredibly narrowly specified cognitive capacity, so really, really specialized stuff, which would be exhibited under some very, very limited range of uh, conditions, and then you would build a model of that. Um, but now it's more, it's perhaps more acceptable to sort of focus on some of the bigger questions that you might think that work was kind of losing track of. So questions like, how do we think? How do we learn? How do our brains give rise to conscious experience? How do we make moral judgments? So my perception has been that there has been a little bit of a shift in the mind sciences towards toleration of of these kind of big questions and thinking of them as as kind of legitimate and serious research questions. And like my impression has been that this has been a, a kind of a uptake of as it were, philosophical thinking within the within the scientific community. I'm assuming he's asking you, Masrita. So I mean, I, I could respond, but <laughs> you go first. Oh then, well, then. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, that's actually kind of what I was going to ask you uh, because mm-hmm. as you were talking, I was thinking about if that's true, and I tend to think that it is somewhat true. I don't know. I'm not sure how to articulate it. If it is true, I'm wondering if it's because uh, the those specializations have gotten to the point where they've reached almost a limit. And, and then you, you kind of look around and think, oh, well, what else? How, how can I move forward? Or now kind of you have to look around me and ask, what am I actually doing here at, you know, in this space? And then recontextualize how it relates. And then you kind of have to back up and broaden out. And I'm wondering if, if the specialization naturally pulls philosophical considerations in that respect and then and then gets filled up a little bit more with with philosophical work i don't know does that if that makes sense masrita mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i'd certainly say there's a like tolerance for that bigger picture thinking and that's there in the popular science literature and cognitive neuroscience where you know there's certainly scientists writing about these issues more generally and then in terms of experimental research where i see that coming in recently is this trend you know towards more ethological experiments within um cognitive neuroscience so instead of you know training a primate or a um rodent to do like one super specialized task and get loads and loads of data on that looking at more naturalistic movements and behaviors which involve pulling in thinking about perception and motor control and memory and navigation all in the one experiment yeah what what about in the kind of the theory building or model building where is it accurate to say that there's a a bit more support for the idea of kind of that there are big general models which are going to be helpful in all sorts of circumstances so thinking, you know, of Bayesian models, reinforcement learning models, like incredibly general ideas that um, are mm-hmm. providing insight into kind of 
big questions that then you can apply to specific specific scenarios rather than taking some hyper-specialized case and then building a bespoke model just of, of, of that case. There's a lot of things to talk about here. One is just our computational power now that affords the ability to run bigger models that can handle uh, more data, right? And another thing to maybe talk about, and I don't want to dominate this uh, conversation, but another thing to maybe talk about is the fact that when when a model a new model comes on the scene and it is successful in one domain, it then just gets plastered over mm-hmm. all over all over all the other domains to see you know what what other questions it can handle. So there's a lot of that probably going on, especially with Bayesian models mm-hmm. and deep learning models. Let's just see mm-hmm. what they can uh, work on. Yeah, I think it's always been every modeler and theoretician's dream in neuroscience to have the one modeling framework that will just work across the board because that's the ultimate dream. It seems that it isn't just a one-way travel towards greater and greater hyper-specialization, which is kind of encouraging that there's some some force pushing back against that. Um, And it may well be, as Paul diagnosed it, that... uh, um, the, that you just kind of uh, run into a bit of a dead end once you once you go too far with the hyper specialization, and you need to have a have a slightly more general model. Yeah, well, if that's the case, that should be something that philosophers um, should learn from, because definitely within philosophy, there's been this trend towards hyper specialization, which I am not a fan of myself. No, me neither. Hasn't one of the uh, fixes to that hyper specialization been? to look to the practice of science to see what science is actually doing and start to start to deal like bring those practices into the philosophy and relate philosophical discussions to the scientific practices is, is that one motivating factor for looking to science to to avoid the hyper specialization yeah actually i would think it's been the reverse i mean you know philosophy of science as it was done a few decades ago had plenty of people that called themselves general, you know, thought of themselves as general philosophers of science, you know, they would look at issues, you know, across the board, maybe physics had more of a preeminent role there, but they considered their philosophies to be, you know, applicable to the sciences generally. And now that's actually becoming quite rare for someone Mm. to think of themselves as a generalist in philosophy of science, as opposed to a philosopher of biology and maybe philosopher of synthetic biology or philosopher of computational neuroscience so yeah the um so i think one of the reasons for this in philosophy of science is that there's been more and more of a requirement for people to know the technical details of the science that they're talking about and so obviously to get that immersed knowledge you need to focus you can't do that for many many branches of science at once one of the ways in which this can go wrong is that you end up just doing a study of a really, really specialized area in science. And then you're really starting to fit the Richard Feynman type model where, you know, you're just describing what the, what the scientists are up to. And it's unclear how that's contributing to the, to, to the project of seeing how things more generally hang together. <laughs> This is one of your four uh, ways that that philosophy contributes is is to uh, is cohering theories, right? So that's exactly what you were just speaking to. Um, yeah, exactly. Being able to step back a little bit and see how different models might fit together, um, mm-hmm. how different methodologies um, might, might, might fit together. So um, I think that that's 
something that you know philosophers have the luxury of being able to do, and um, often scientists do that, and often the the greatest scientists are you know able to do that uh, amazingly well. But um, but uh, but yeah, I think that uh, philosophers are, are kind of well placed to to hopefully contribute to that project of seeing how, how different models fit together. What is it? Is that maybe this is the question you're just asking, Mark? But a few moments ago, but what is your view, you know, from the philosophical perspective, is neuros- is science doing its job of cohering? How is it, is it cohering more or cohering less as time moves on? Different theories are the, you know, how do you view this, the specialization versus cohering trend? Well, you know what, I, I, as you were saying yourself, you know, there, there are a lot, there's lots of variation across the sciences. Like my impression is, is that there's, a kind of uh, an upsurge in in people willing to um, try to step back and look at look at the big picture and trying to push for models which are um, general, powerful, unifying, um, and trying to probe a little bit the limits of those models. Um, so I think that you know if we think about um, the way in which Sellers characterized, or that, that slogan by which Sellers characterized the philosophical project, I think that that kind of big picture thinking is something which is really um, occurring more now in cognitive neuroscience. Do you think it's getting funded more? Because it's really the funders who control that to some degree. So I, I wonder if, if that ambition is trickling up to the mm-hmm. funding agencies. And I don't want to go down that road, but you know... I, I just realized that that's a limitation. Yeah, I, I, like I fear that the situation might be that you have to kind of cut your teeth and uh, doing some sort of very specialized work, make a name for yourself, and then whenever you um, have have a lab and have your name, then you can start uh, looking at the at the bigger mm-hmm. bigger picture stuff. And uh, lots of uh, yeah, really um, excellent people in cognitive neuroscience are are kind of doing that, but. Um, uh, but yeah, the, but the very fact that there is um, toleration or the thought that some of these bigger questions are um, are legitimate research questions, I think is I think that's that's actually encouraging and healthy, and um, it's good. So I I worked uh, myself in a whenever I was an undergraduate in a physiology lab, and I was a little bit put off um, the work <laughs> no. for the same reasons that you suggest, Paul, that I kind of went into it thinking, okay, I'm going to work, learn how the mind works, how vision works. And then I ended up studying, you know, some oh, incredibly yeah. specialized capacity mm-hmm. and getting very puzzled by it, but uh, not really getting any further on the question, which I originally had. So are you, are you going to give the name of the very eminent neuroscientist oh, yeah, whose lab it was? Um, so, so this is, so I, I very much enjoyed it. I learned a lot from, now so I was, I was, so I was I was lucky I was lucky to be in the lab of Horace Barlow oh, okay. in Cambridge. So yeah. um, who was yeah it was quite. I bet he was a pretty interesting person to be around. Yeah, really, really amazing character. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, so I learned a lot from that. I didn't. I don't feel I learned a huge amount from the from the study I did over the summer, though. Which, uh, but you know what's what's interesting is that is that um, Barlow was had that higher uh, idea exactly. mindset and mm-hmm. approach, and yet yeah. you were still uh, slightly befuddled by the the, the uh, specialization. Right. Yeah, he was very much a like blue skies theorist. That's right. Uh, it was really inspiring to listen to him 
and he was uh, incredibly kind and generous to me as a, as a lowly undergraduate student. It was uh, really a privilege to work in his lab, but I guess the best I could do at the time was just to focus on my one tiny little experiment. I thought he didn't run a physiology lab. I thought like he, after a certain time, he... Psychophysics. Psychophysics. So it was in the the physiology department. the lab was in the physiology department. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What what do you think? So when I was interviewing uh, for a postdoc, and I'm not going to name names here, but the the faculty member with whom I was interviewing came from a well-known lab. And we were talking about his experience in that well-known lab. And he said that well-known person, his advice to him, sorry, it's convoluted, was uh, just say a bunch of crazy shit and eventually something will be true. <laughs> what, what do you think about that approach? Because then something will stick. That's kind of orthogonal to the uh, sophisticated, uh, uh, reappreciating mm-hmm. so- what we don't think was sophisticated as sophisticated. Well, that's a, a different, that's like a um, divergent thinking mm-hmm. way of progressing. Is that is you think that's a good method? Yeah, was it was this a method for career progress or making scientific breakthroughs? Oh, you know what? I I think I think the former, I think mm-hmm. career, but uh mm-hmm. probably the latter as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know. I'll mm-hmm. have to go back and ask. Mm-hmm. A lot of philosophers do this actually. <laughs> so <laughs> so the landscape of possible yeah. views that one might hold is absolutely enormous and the thought is okay i'll just land on something which is totally mad and defend right. that to the to, to, to the death mm-hmm. and you can make a name for yourself doing that and uh, and it's fun entertaining mm-hmm. in certain ways but um i don't know i i was um so i, I whenever i was a phd student i was very influenced by a um, philosopher who died um recently uh, um, hugh meller and uh, he was uh, also a philosopher of science and um he was an unbelievably sharp mind and able to defend, you know, have the skill to, to play that game and defend any view or um, uh, act in that way. But, um, but yeah, he had this uh, criterion that, you know, you shouldn't defend things which are daft. And um, so he would uh, say that, you know, why waste time doing that? So you should use your, you know, if you have the intellectual skills, which uh, right. Right. Um, if you are lucky to have, um, you should you know, use them, use them wisely, um, and don't use them in defending daft stuff just to make a name for yourself. <laughs> uh, but I, I see Masvidas point as well that, you know, it, it's valuable as a whole in science for people to explore some crazy stuff just in case it, it does stick. Is a computational brain, is that crazy? Let, let's talk about the computational mind. It seems like a fine segue. So th- these days, in neuroscience, you would not, no one would call you crazy if you thought that what the mind is, is computation. Everything in neuroscience is computation. Everything, I mean, that's what a, that's what artificial intelligence is based on, is the computational approach to solving problems. And we're asking computational questions. So we see computational answers to those questions. Um, and we abstract away the, the stuff that doesn't address the computations. And uh, you guys have, have both talked about this. So what do you think is, is, I mean, and we can, we can bring in, you know, sort of the fundamentals of, of the computational theory of mind, but just to start off, uh, just a really broad question is cognition, is cognition just computation? Okay. Well, short answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's very short. That's good. With your brain computer analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, the point being that, you know, Computation is a model 
um, more, and we're going to talk about perspectivism later in the um, in the podcast. I expect, we, but you if know, we need to, we can talk mm-hmm. about it now, just wherever. It, yeah. yeah, but you know, science being an assembly of different ways of thinking about some very complicated things in nature, it's always handy to have some, you know, overarching analogy or better understood system often a man-made system which is you know much more transparent than something that's been just found in nature like our brains are um and so it it's a very seductive model because you have this question well if it's not if mind isn't computation what on earth could it be because the closest we seem to have of a you know intelligent like system which is um also intelligible to us we can actually make sense of how it's doing this intelligent seeming behavior is a computer so i think people have been very much keen to you know foreclose on the possibility that there are other perspectives on what cognition could be that aren't computational ones yeah so i think that um so i agree with what matsvita is saying here and i think her and i you know, have whole very similar views here. I think that this is actually something which is kind of useful to look a little bit back in, in history on. Um, so I think that for a long time, um, philosophers have said things which are kind of unhelpful or potentially mm. misleading about computation and cognition. And I think that this is only getting corrected now, thanks to the work of, of, of Matt Sveda and, 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 and other folks who are and thinking about it in a different way. So, so if we go back in time a little bit, so going back to the 1950s, say, to up until, say, the 1980s or early 1990s. So computation was thought of as something very attractive because it was a escape from a, a kind of a potential bind. So if you go back in the early days, the 1950s, um, a very popular view of the mind was that mental processes were identical to brain processes. So this was the old-fashioned um, identity mm-hmm. theory of the mind. Mm-hmm. So mental processes equal um, brain processes. Yeah, and it was reductionistic. So it was sort of denying really a separate level or ontology for psychology, but saying that you know ultimately detailed neurophysiology would have all the answers to what mental states are. Mm. Yeah, so... This was kind of the orthodoxy, but then um, a number of people, including the philosopher Hilary Putnam, pointed out a you know a very serious problem with the identity theory, which is that it seems perfectly possible that there could be cognition which uses different physical hardware from the neurons that we in fact use. So it just seems really a contingent fact about us that we happen to use neurons to do our thinking with, mm-hmm. and there's nothing inherently special about them. It's more something to do with their function or their organization, which enables cognition. So it can't be that cognitive processes are brain processes, because cognitive processes could also be other things. They could be implemented on other hardware. Yeah. But could yeah, could I just chime in there? But I mean there are different kinds of, you know, multiple realization here. And some are some to me seem much more pro- problematic for the idea for um, identity theory. So it would involve like denying that an octopus has pain because that's a very different kind of neural system from um, you get in vertebrates. But to say that, you know, completely different hardware could have pain. Well, since we don't have around us, you know, 
other kinds of physical systems that have um, pain that aren't animals, that seems less of a problem for me if you're an identity theorist. But but Putnam, you know, took that argument both ways. It wasn't just, you know, different kinds of animal nerve neural realizers, but also like completely different um, physical systems. Yeah, so he wanted to at least allow for the possibility that there could be thought that takes place on silicon. Um, so we might not have it now, we might never get it, but um, it's at least um, something which is which is a possibility, you know, it's in principle possible, or it's in principle possible that you could have thought with, you know, other kinds of physical, other kinds of physical hardware. So there could be other agents who are not carbon based life forms, but are still capable of cognition. And you don't want to kind of rule out that a priori. Yeah, exactly. Extraterrestrials. Yeah. yeah. So it may be that it may be that they don't exist, but that should be an empirical question of whether they exist or they don't exist. You don't rule it out in your theory of what cognition is. But now you're talking about thought. Was the, was the idea that it was thought that could be realized by other hardware or computations? So, so the idea was, uh, the focus was on, on thought and all aspects of mental life. And the idea was that it, it can't be identical to certain physical goings on. And um, so the solution that Putnam proposed and um, that became very popular was that mental processes were computational mm-hmm. processes. And the advantage of saying that is that computations are multiply realizable. So you can run computations on neurons, you can run them on silicon, you can run them on all sorts of other hardware in principle. Um, so this kind of gets around this worry about um, being a chauvinist and just saying, well, uh, cognitive processes are can only be brain processes or, or equal to brain processes. Um, so that, that solution was called um, computational functionalism. And that was a really, really popular view and basically orthodoxy, um, you know, pretty much until today. And so the idea is that for lots of aspects of our mental life, there's a question about consciousness and things like that. But for lots and lots of aspects of our mental life, cognitive information processing aspects, those things are just computations. And those computations happen to be implemented in us, uh, in neural activity. You use the past tense, but yeah, it is, it's still excuse me, still the de facto sort of accepted view these days, I I would say. That's right. So, but there's an entirely different way to think about the role of um, computation in mental life and cognition. And on this view, which is kind of one I favor, and I think Matsvita favors as well, um, computations are ways of describing complex things in the world in simple, idealized terms. So computational models, they abstract, they simplify, and they idealize physical processes into forms that are mathematically tractable and that we can understand and that we can reason about. So computational models are ways of looking at complicated mass of stuff going on in the physical world and identifying sort of robust, mathematically quantifiable patterns inside that mass. So the point of this kind of second way of thinking about it that's kind of important to note is that um, the motivation for appealing to computation and um, to explain cognition derives in this case from the fact that humans, we as human inquirers, are fundamentally limited. So if we had godlike intelligence and kind of unlimited perceptual abilities, 
we could just look at the mass of complicated physical stuff directly. So we could just look at the spaghetti wiring in the brain and say, oh yeah, I understand what's going on here. I can understand that this connects to that and why this behavior is produced under these physical conditions. And I can tell you what would happen under this other condition. But we're just not like that. So the mass of physical activity in the brain is just baffling to us. And the kind of the more you look at it, the more baffling it seems to get. So we need some way to sort of simplify and idealize and cut it down to size. And so the point is really about our epistemic limitations. Mm. It's not a point about a metaphysical point about needing to appeal to computation because of multiple realization in different hardware. The primary motivation for appealing to computation to explain cognition is to use it to simplify and idealize what's a super complicated and otherwise confusing and baffling mm-hmm. system. But but it but it's interesting that, you know, the neuroscientists using computational models, they'll be much more aware of the, you know, the value of abstraction and idealization and to some extent aware of all the, the details that are being purposely left out of those models and not hung up about the partner multiple realization arguments, but yet they still have that ontological commitment to cognition being computation. So it seems interesting to me that when you're a working scientist in the weeds and doing this kind of modeling, it's also quite hard to step back from like mm. equating the ontology of your model with the ontology of the target, the system that you're ultimately trying to understand. Maybe this is a good point to bring in the pluralism, perspectivalism aspect never, to it. Never not a good point to bring those in, right, <laughs> these days. Yeah. So if, if you think that the point of or primary motivation for appealing to computation is, is, is this goal of being able to simplify and idealize this complex system, then um, a natural kind of next step to accept is that there are going to be multiple ways of doing mm-hmm. that. So um, there's not going to be kind of one good way to do that. So it's going to serve all of your ends. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, you want to simplify in a certain way to capture patterns at one spatial scale or one temporal scale or in a certain context or relative to certain tasks. There are lots and lots of different ways of um, idealizing the system um, into uh, into a computational model or simplifying the system into a computational model. So that kind of really chips away at the idea that there's kind of one canonical computation which runs on the brain. Rather, you know, there are multiple computational perspectives you might take in order to explain various stuff. Mm -hmm. So once you kind of give up on that and you move towards a kind of pluralist, perspectivalist view, then it becomes, it begins to look that old equation of, you know, cognition equals the computation that runs on the brain begins to look a lot less, a lot less credible. Because um, there is no the computation that runs on the brain. There are just kind of multiple computational perspectives that you might adopt for different to explain different capacities or predict yeah. different things. Yeah, so there's multiple perspectives within computationalism and also beyond computationalism as well. So one can think of the brain not as a information processor which has mm. clearly defined functions that it's performing, um, but also as something whose ontology is just like any other biological organ, um, or you could think of it as dynamical systems, and that's another perspective that people are into. Yeah, that's right. So I think that, you know, Putnam, um, at the time, people thought that, you know, 
there would be a canonical computation mm-hmm. that the brain is performing. Um, people still so do. Pa- Some people. So, do. <laughs> so pa- yeah. Putnam, Putnam thought of it in terms of uh, Turing machine models. So he thought that that right. algorithm that runs on the brain would take a Turing machine form. Like that's not particularly credible. Um, that particular architecture would not be particularly credible right. as a, as architecture for human cognition um, uh, any longer. But um, but the idea that there is one canonical mm-hmm. um, computation that the system performs, I think that that is um, is is an important assumption in order to have that um, uh, computational functionalist view, where you say that there's this one to one mapping between computation running on the brain and your cognitive processes. But once you start saying, well, there's loads of computation, this very complicated system, and I can model it all sorts of different ways with all sorts of different computational architectures, depending on what I need to explain or what's the particular context of the task, then um, you've broken that link between one computation, one men- one cognitive process, or one mental process. I don't want to derail us uh, too much down to, to talk about MAR, but uh, I find I found myself wondering um, in the last five minutes or so of this conversation, how this relates to Mars' computational level of analysis. Um, Mark, you started off talking about how we're epistemically limited and there's a lot more going on and we have to idealize uh, and abstract away in order to talk about some computation because we're, well, so the, here's the question is, Mars' computational level um, could could be reformulated uh on the one hand, people t- talk about it's an ontologically, let, let's say, oh, vision, because he was concerned with vision, right? So vision, there's the computation of vision, and that computation is ontologically real. And I don't know if this will get us into talking about realism and anti-realism, but but then what you were saying made me think, uh, and a perspectival and, and pluralistic um, uh, vantage point on that would would suggest that we shouldn't have any confidence that there is any ontologically real status of the quote-unquote computation, even for something like vision. And instead, we have to talk about it that way because we're too dumb to uh, to to really articulate the, the full story of what's happening cognitively beyond the computations. Um, so is that a different way to think about Mars' computational level? Is just a, another simplification? Yeah, so, um, so I think that, yeah, Mar was actually... Pretty sensitive to, to this stuff, although it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not the stuff that people kind of pick up no, most he, from his view. No, this um, is another thing where we're gonna we misunderstand mm-hmm. Mar. We mischaracterize Mar, and it hasn't even been that long. You know, I know, but um, so. but, um, uh, but yeah, on the. Um, I think that you know, if we think about this, two roles of computation. There's a computationalist, functionalist one, advertised by Putnam. And then there's the the kind of the new thing that computations is simplifying, idealizing mm-hmm. things, which are it's being pushed by Mats Vida. Um, so on the on the first view, you like a natural way to think of computations is as stuff which is out there as as as, as processes or as things. And whenever you start saying, okay, well, I'm going to identify computations with mental processes, then you know you've reduced um, I don't know one property or one kind of process to another. On the second view, you give up thinking about 
really computations as things which are kind of out there. And you start talking a lot more about computational models and the virtue of computational models and computational descriptions, where you might have a whole array of different computational models which are applying to your physical system and, and helping you to kind of explain and, and, and deal with certain capacities and certain circumstances. So there's a shift between talking about computation or thinking of computations as things which are out there to thinking about, well, computational descriptions and yeah. descriptions, what, how are those useful? What role do they play in science? Yeah. I mean, in Mar, the computation is a level of explanation. So that suggests that it's, you know, in some way related to the scientist's inquiry and what they are trying to explain. But at the same time, he does write about it as, you know, you need to find out what vision is for. So it's, it's functional. There is a fun a functional vision for the organism and there is a computation that the visual system is doing or set of computations that the visual system is doing um, from one part cascading to another part so he's not as much as a pluralist as you are mark yeah so so at the computational like the way i understand the mm -hmm. mars computational level it's a description of the problem that the brain is facing mm -hmm. in various yeah. circumstances so it's not it's not necessarily telling you a great deal about the process or algorithm which is running it's a description of the problem that the brain is facing and it has kind of two elements so one is the description of kind of inf an informal description of what you know what ecologically is the problem that the brain is trying to solve and then it the aim is to try to have some sort of formal counterpart to that so, um, so you might say that in this envision, the brain is trying to detect edges in the visual field because that has all sorts of different mm -hmm. value. And you might say, well, actually, a good way of detecting edges is to um, compute this mathematical function. Um, and that if you compute this mathematical function, it'll often pick up, pick up edges. And that will provide a formal characterization of the problem that the brain um, is facing mm -hmm. in, in, in those circumstances. So I don't really see how that commits you to the sort of computational functionalism. There's only one true mm -hmm. computation that the brain is performing. You know, I think that that, 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 that kind of picture is, is just as friendly towards mm -hmm. a, a perspectival view. Yeah. So, so not to the, you know, Putnam theory of mind, but there's a difference from what you described of Ma there and the view that you started out with, which is, you know, starting with just the brute complexity of the visual system and admitting, well, there's way more going on there than any um, theory of vision, however elaborate its models are, that is, is going to be able to encapsulate um but, and so, you know, using, you know, that recognition of complexity as, you know, a way to like provisionalize the claims that are there in that, in being made in that theory of vision that, well, yeah, which would be the qualified claim would be, well, as far as we can make out, given the limitations of our ability to collect data and, and model them, this is the best way we can come up with as a theory of what's going on with 
in this area, we think it's doing edge detection. And look, we can run that algorithm in a computer as well, and we can get some simulation of vision, but admitting that there could be, that this is only like a very provisional sketch of what is of one tiny part of the process, which, yeah, Mar's own presentation of his work was not, was not that provisional. Yeah, so I, I think actually, like in Mar, there's something close to the point about complexity and our epistemic limitations. So he was reacting against the sort of trend to just focus on the neurophysiology and do loads and loads of recordings yeah. of neurons and, um, uh, you know, uh, find perceptual stimuli which would trigger certain recordings and then just track all of those patterns. And he was saying, well, what, you know, you're just going to find more and more complex stuff yeah, that, that exactly. way. And we don't really know what it means, what the point of all of this is. So you might keep on doing this project for a hundred years and still not really understand that much about vision. You understand that certain neurons are going to correlate with certain stimuli under certain conditions, but what, what does that really tell you about how vision works? And um, so I think that the, like his, his alternative, which is to think about, well, what is the problem that the visual system is trying to solve? And um, that involves kind of abstracting away from various stuff and also idealizing. And um, so I think it's, I think it's reacting in a similar way to, it's a very complicated domain. And if you just look at recording everything you can in that domain, you're not going to understand mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, he, I agree. He's certainly reacting against the, that reductionistic approach where you could look at the pieces and and see how putting all the neurons together, you might get a visual, visual system. And he's saying, you know, without a theory about what vision is for, you'll never, you'll never be able to work this out bottom up at all. It's actually better to start with a top down theory. But how I think about that is, you know, the reductionist and then the more computationalist approach is two different bets on where they're going to find simplicity and order in the brain. So the reductionist thinks that just by focusing on the simple components, i.e. the neurons, you're going to somehow see how those piece together like Lego bricks in order to get the complex behavior coming out. Whereas the Mar approach is hoping to find simplicity and order in the brain, but at that level of computation. So, yeah, I, th I think that that's, that's right. But maybe the point at which it differs from the kind of perspectivalist pluralist views is if you think that there's only one kind of correct way of doing that. And I don't know if Mar was committed to that assumption or how strongly he might have held that assumption if he did. How, how many perspectives are what's the right number of perspectives to have I and mean, the, the what i really want to ask is how much of cognition uh is computation right if if it's a complex mass and what you're saying is part of what it's doing um masrita you use the word tiny actually which i was mm -hmm. you know it is computation a tiny part of of what the brain is doing um and how much of what it's doing is related to cognition, what quote unquote cognition, because some people define cognition as computation, for right. instance. And so. um, I don't know, you know, maybe we need to tease those apart a little bit better. But, but um, you know, the, the question is how much of what the brain is doing 
uh, mm-hmm. is computation. And this also relates to Masrita. You, you talk about you know, the analogy of the brain as a computer and what we should expect if the brain is doing a lot more, if computation mm-hmm. is a somewhat, I want to use the word tiny again, part of what the brain mm-hmm. is doing, we should find a lot of disanalogies as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, so that's the question is how much of what the brain is doing should we count as computation? And what does that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a really hard question to answer given the current state of knowledge at least when we're doing arithmetic the brain is doing computation <laughs> it all comes back to the math yeah so francis egan would like that i suppose but yeah okay. yeah i think that that's 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 a pretty secure kiss <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it really it, it's a real question because the, the field is just dominated by by computation mm-hmm. right and so if if computation either should we think of it as computation as being one little thing that falls out of the rest of the processing or is, or should we think like of computation as just our way of dumbing it down enough so that we can describe it and think about it, what's happening in the brain? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how should we relate? Well, yeah. I, think- I mean, I, I think of it in the latter way, but I'd also like to emphasize that if you're a serious perspectivist, you give up on the question of like asking, well, what, is really truthfully literally going on in the brain and you admit that you're only going to be able to see things by way of a perspective so that question you know how much is it really computation and how much is something else you realize that scientifically speaking you're not going to be able to answer that but then but but would you commit to then say because you said computation might be a tiny thing that the brain is doing, then what you're saying is that the vast majority of neuroscience is focusing on a tiny thing about what the brain is doing. No, so okay. so I just so the tiny thing that the brain is doing. So yeah, literally we are doing computation when we're doing arithmetic and doing maths sure. using our brains, right? Yeah, yeah. Um well I didn't mean then, focusing on the, just the math part. But yeah, exactly. Um but I didn't mean to say that there are some parts of computational neuroscience that are literally honing on on the computations that are really there in the brain and the rest are wrong and need to be replaced. What I mean is, what I really meant to say is that computation may well be the best framework given the current knowledge that people have of modeling the brain. And that would be fine as long as you don't take that as the final story about what the brain is independently of any perspective. I, I don't want to be a perspectivist about mm-hmm. what's going on at a physical level. So I think that there's mm-hmm. only one thing going on at a physical level. So, so some people are perspe- perspective, perspectivalists about all sorts of different domains. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to be a global perspectivist about, about everything. So you might mm-hmm. think that there's just, you know, you're just a realist about, about the physical stuff going on. And um, so that's, that's kind of my, where I land. Um, but I am a perspectivalist about the computation, which is performed by the brain. So the question, how much of the brain is computation, I think, is not a well-formed question. So I think that mm. the question should be um, which bits of brain activity are useful to model in terms of computation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, and pairing with that, which bits aren't? Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I can imagine that, you know, there are going to be certain bits which are and aren't which a computational formalism is and isn't helpful to um, uh, to use as a model, but um, but it's not that you know there's certain bits of brain activity which really are computing and other bits mm-hmm. of which which um, aren't computing, and we have to um, identify which bits are 
or the, the computing bits and which bits aren't. I, I don't think that that's, I think that's to um, picture computation in, in, in kind of a, according to my lights, an incorrect way. Uh, it's just thinking about the, the applicability of a computational model or the payoff for applying computational model um, to that domain. Do, yeah. do you think that go ahead Pasrita. yeah Sorry. i was just gonna say i i agree with that i like how mark put that do, do you think that neuroscience is too focused on a sort of realistic view of computation as being cognition so i think that yeah, I, I think it pro probably is, you know, t taking... I'm asking you to be judgmental, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I'm hesitating because I think that there's um, all sorts of heuristic and instrumental values in holding beliefs which I don't think perhaps are correct. So I think that there's all sorts of value for a scientific inquirer to be a realist about computation. I think that there's huge value, undeniable value in somebody not being a perspectivalist. Mm. So someone who is in the grip of their model and they think that their model is the canonical computation performed by the brain is going to be highly motivated to try to apply their model as widely as they can and mm. develop it in as, uh, you know, as, as strong way as possible. And that's, that's what we want. Um, so we want as few <laughs> different, we don't, we, we don't want a proliferation of perspectives without utility without value so we want as few models we're going to have multiple models we want as few models as possible we want those models to be as wide-ranging and as unifying as as possible and if someone who's in the process of building a model believes that their model is the only model they're going to be very strongly motivated to uh, to develop it in, in that kind of virtuous yeah. way as a as a heuristic that very literal ontological interpretation of one's own model could be fine. I mean, the other thing to point out about perspectivism here is it goes with pragmatism, you know, that approach to science, which doesn't like pitch the, um, well, I would say pos positively speaking, which never wants to forget that there are practical aims of inquiry when we're talking about what scientists are doing. And so to ask whether computationalism is the right framework for neuroscientists you have to ask well what is the you know pragmatic goal of the research mm. um and so if you look at statements of why neuroscientists are doing the kind of research that they're doing they'll typically state things in the you know big position piece things about understanding the brain in order to cure mental illness and neurological disease and make people's lives better so really the question about the utility of the computational framework should be about how well is it serving those sure. those goals. Maybe this is a good time to bring in artificial intelligence um, because the, the sort of implicit bet in AI is that uh, it's all computation, right? Mm -hmm. That anything worth, that intelligence, that anything that we would ascribe to intelligence is all based on computation. Uh, and if we take the perspective that um, the computation is one part that that we can describe through an idealized way of what's happening in the brain. Then the then the question is, you know, what are the other things that are happening from the brain, whether we idealize them or not? What is it useful to talk about that the brain might be doing that might be missing in the computational approach? And if if there is something worth talking about, is it also worth talking about in terms of building intelligent agents? Mm -hmm. It seems kind of important to get it mm -hmm. to get it right. 
and and this may lead us into the 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 need to naturalize mm-hmm. um, computation, uh, com- the computational theory of mind, naturalize our mental properties uh, through representation and such. So I just throw out a mouthful. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe you have a response to the to the AI question mm-hmm. as well. Well, I mean, certainly one of the reasons why these, you know, programs and expectations for AI, especially, you know, going into general artificial intelligence, one of one of the ways they get their plausibility is certainly because people are assuming that cognition intelligence is computation. And so, you know, what's disanalogous between um, brains and artificial neural networks is not important to how it is that um, humans are intelligent. So, it, so I think it's an int- you know an important sociological point, maybe about how a philosophical idea coming from Putnam and also having its own motivations within neuroscience, because people are you know passionate about their own perspectives of research, how that and that feeds into a, like a more general view that's out there amongst the general public and technologists that. You know, this is a thing that is possible because um, thought is computation. Yeah. So, um, so the the general intelligence is kind of the uh, is an interesting case because um, it's something that yeah we don't really have any decent computational models of, and despite you know huge amounts of progress in AI in recent years and development of you know much more efficient machine learning algorithms, um, there hasn't been you know really noticeable progress on on general intelligence the problem of general intelligence um, so philosophers often are very impressed by that piece of data mm-hmm. like the the kind of the failure to really make much progress on that on that hard problem um, uh, and I think that there are basically three options that there, there, there are three really alternatives for explaining why that's the case. Mm. Um, so the first is that, you know, we just, we're chipping away at the problem and we'll eventually get there. So we just need slightly more sophisticated computational models, but we're on the right path. More and more, so, more data. Exactly. More just, just, just give it more time. It's early days of the research program. Um, second option is that we need new computational techniques. So something different from our current computational models, which perhaps haven't been thought of yet. Mm-hmm. So you get all these, you know, interesting suggestions about, you know, um, learning algorithms which um, uh, don't just adjust weights in connectionist networks, but actually change the topology of the network, kind of grow mm-hmm. nodes, remove nodes, and things like that. So you mm-hmm. do the... So, so you're talking about, it's about new models within deep learning. Exactly. So new, entirely new computational. So the space of all computational techniques has in no way been fully explored. There are lots and lots of options out there. So perhaps a new type of technique will crack the problem. Um, the third alternative is that we need a non-computational technique to um, get a good model of um, general intelligence where a purely computational approach isn't sufficient. And you get folks who argue for this and say that um, they're impressed by embodiment and they mm-hmm. think that if the, the system has to be physically embodied and has to be involved in interacting with a kind of a fairly rich physical environment in order to um, have the capacities associated with general intelligence. So folks who are impressed by robotics and situated cognition movement argue for this. Um, And I think it's just kind of too early to say, really, I don't really know how anyone can confidently assign their credences across those three options at the moment. 
um, I think it's at least reasonable to um, entertain the possibility that we may be in the in the third option and that computation may not be sufficient mm-hmm. to crack general intelligence. There's certainly people on that third option that think it's two plus three. So if you have a hu- well, actually, and one, so a really, really, really huge neural network, say artificial neural network, um, with a different architecture plus ability to engage with the world. Yeah, I think well, there's there's a limit in that we know that it's possible because we do it, and okay. <laughs> we're presumably not magical. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, so if you built something which was very much an embodied mm-hmm. system, very much like us, then then, then presumably it would it, it would exhibit same properties as us, including general intelligence. But um, but yeah, whether, to the extent which you can get there just through computation, just by running the right computation, is, is kind but of it, it would it would still be very different from us if it was a robot with a massive onboard computer, right? Because it would just be replacing our brains with a computer. Yeah. So, so you might think, so I, I was categorizing under the third option, everything to do with physical embodiment, oh, which isn't, right. which isn't oh, okay. covered by, um, by computation. Yeah. Um, where, whereas I was thinking about, you know, people saying like, okay, so GPT-3 doesn't understand anything, but if you allowed it to like interact with the stuff that it's producing text about, then it would get semantics and then it would mm. get more general intelligence yeah yeah so so yeah so some some of the folks go that way and some some folks think that you know our general intelligence and our ability to um kind of determine what context we're currently in and know kind of what the current problem our brain's facing is so that problem of kind of context context detection it's not a it's not a problem which is solved purely by our brain it's not that our brain takes in like all the sensory data and then what kicks out, okay, I'm in this context, is rather um, something which is solved by the way in which we're embedded in certain physical environments, which folks say call forth or solicit certain responses. So it may well be that, you know, whenever you're um, at home with the kids, that context, that being in that physical context calls forth certain patterns of responses, which solves the context determination problem for you without you having to. That's, that's my brain computing, feeling defeated, uh, being in the yeah. home with, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Despair. Point, despair. Right? Yeah. yeah that's, that's this feeling. That's the computational <laughs> feeling of despair or non, it'd be the non-computational feeling. Yeah. Does, does embodiment, does, does that encompass so so i'm trying i'm just trying to think of like what might be important non-computational ways of approaching and one of the reasons why i'm thinking this way uh is you know so for instance uh, mark i don't know that you don't have any ambitions to start a neuroscience lab and i don't think masrita you have further ambitions to go back to neuroscience Mm -hmm. but i'm wondering you know if you went back to neuroscience it seems like a great challenge and a in the spirit of contrarianism to pursue a non-computational uh, perspective in inroads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're going to open a, neuro, a neuroscience lab these days, and I'm only asking because uh, because I'm selfish, because I think like if I were going to do this, what would I, what approach would I take? Would I take that would marry an alternative, non-computational approach, mm-hmm. sort of philosophically, to uh, an, a hardcore uh, hardcore exp- to an experimental neuroscience uh, approach and 
I don't, it's an unfair question because I don't have an answer for it myself. But you know, if if you were going to start a neuroscience lab, like would is this something that you would uh, try to tackle? Because it is um, not well trodden territory in neuroscience. Yeah, I mean the the question this raises for me, and actually Mark and I were having a discussion about this before we joined you, is okay. What gets excluded from the computational framework? If you have this assumption in the background that all physical systems are computationally simulatable, then how could I frame this research such that someone could come along and say, ah, but, you know, that person couldn't come along and say, ah, but no, you're just describing a computational system. Because my first thought there with you, Paul, was to actually, well, maybe what I'd be most interested in looking at is, say, memory and sigil celled organisms because you know i was look, listening to um gershman the other day talking about memory and par- paramecium and yeah. oh this is really fascinating stuff because you know, there's presumably things that are happening in multicellular organisms like ourselves which are memory like how does that relate to all of this heavy and stuff which is really simulable in artificial neural networks but then someone could come along to that and say yeah but this is just computation but it's at that single cell scale so yeah how 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 are we going to define the non-computational perspective at this stage or, or it's not even memory because mm-hmm. memory is computational so we, mm-hmm. we need to call it something right. else or something yeah, yeah. like co- computation has become you know it's a very rich formalism mm-hmm. so um so yeah perhaps you know in the old days when people you said computation people thought of turing machines or people mm-hmm. thought of symbolic computation or production systems and so forth and you know that that kind of narrows the space of options significantly but if you think of computation as folks do nowadays where it's really you know there's a huge space of mathematical formalism so you could be really talking about you know a bunch of variables which are related by differential equations you know that's that that can count as a computational model of a system Mm -hmm. I want to switch gears because I, I, I'm aware of the time and I want to make sure that we talk about, uh, well, I, rather, I want to make sure that we solve the problem of naturalizing mental uh, mental aspects uh, of, of life and intelligence. Um, and we'll do that through talk about representations. Representations is uh, an open question and yet is at, is at the core of computation, computationalism, because uh, what are you computing with? You're computing with these representations that are somehow uh, in the mind, right? And there's there's a problem with representation. The, the big problem, which many words have been and centuries have been uh, spent on, is how uh, how are representations about something? How do they get their meaning? How are they semantic? How how are they intentional? Um, how do you get that from things that that don't have semantic content that don't have meaning? Um, it's the problem of naturalizing representations. So, how close are we to solving this dilemma? <laughs> Mark, maybe you can start us off. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, I think that we are getting closer, um, <laughs> slightly. Um, so We're moving think, in the right direction, okay. I think it's a bit like one of those endless car journeys where the kids are saying, you know, are we nearly there yet? <laughs> are we nearly there yet? So, I think that um, I think we're unlikely to arrive at a clear point where we say, okay, this problem is being solved. Um, but we are making progress and we are chipping away at it, but it, it will remain as a problem for the ages. 
So I think that the respect in which progress has been made um, recently, so I'm, I really like um, Nicholas Shea's um, recent um, prize-winning book on naturalizing representation. It's called Representation in Cognitive Science. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the moves that um, Nick Shea makes in that book is to, which I think is is really, really sensible, is to say that there are going to be cases in cases and we really need to distinguish um, between cases here. So there isn't going to be one theory, naturalistic theory of content, which is going to naturalize all the representations that we care about. Um, so that raises a question of how we carve up the cases. Um, and I think, again, Nick does a really helpful job in the book. And I think that there's a kind of a growing consensus that we there are roughly certain categories of cases that we need to distinguish. So, for example, we need to distinguish more kind of perceptual sensory representations from cases of higher level or more abstract representations. Yeah. And we need to distinguish um, structured representations. Um, and I think that it's a sensible thought that you're probably going to need different approaches to naturalize different kinds of representations. So that, 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 mm-hmm. that all seems great. Um, so where there's more work left to do, I think that we're only at the beginning of distinguishing between different cases. And I think that probably you need to make finer grained distinctions. Um, I think that some cases are going to prove too messy and too dependent on pragmatic considerations to naturalize. So related to this, I think that there's a, a trade-off that if you look into naturalizing representation literature, which always appears that I think is, is, is not sufficiently well understood. So the trade-off is between providing a naturalistic account of a given representation and admitting indeterminacy in the content. So often what happens is that you provide a naturalistic condition on what a given cognitive state represents, but that comes with the consequence that there's a lot of indeterminacy in the content, probably more than you were bargaining for. Now, it's kind of unclear how to, what the rules of the game are here and how to manage this trade-off. So it's not really clear how much indeterminacy is kind of okay. And just, you know, that's something unexpected thing that we've just discovered and how much is really counting as, um, showing that the naturalization project has just mm-hmm. failed in that case and we aren't naturalizing content at all. We're providing something which doesn't capture the content. So I think more progress needs to be made on that fundamental question about how to, how to manage the trade-off. A, a final area which I think that really progress could be made more, we need more progress on, is um, the question on why we're trying to naturalize mm-hmm. representational content at all. So Francis Egan at Rutgers has done like amazing work over the years on this. And I think there's often an assumption among philosophers that we just must naturalize representational content in human cognition or else disaster mm-hmm. ensues. And it's not clear why that's the case at all. So Egan makes the point that it may well be content might be determined by naturalistic factors. There might be nothing spooky or magical going on. But it just happens to be so messy and open-ended and dependent on pragmatic considerations that you're just not going to get a manageable, systematizable theory of content um, for, 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 for at least many cases. So I think asking that question, why do we really need such a theory, is, is, is really an important one to, one to do. Mm-hmm. Masrita, do you want to address that? Because I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I would say... I'm a I'm a fan of Nick Shea's book as well. I think it's a, it's a really nicely done uh, piece on that 
project of being, you know, a realist about representations um, in cognitive science and neuroscience and showing, you know, that value that is had by, you know, scientists positing representations and, and thinking about um, behaving systems in terms of representations. But I'm much more sympathetic with Egan's like questioning about why we also need to go into this thing of naturalizing the mind, because I think that we can assert the value of cognitive science and neuroscience, you know, positing representations in animals and potentially other intelligent systems as well. We might one day talk about plants representing things. But Nat- naturalization is equated with reduction so it's actually mm-hmm. showing how you put non-semantic pieces together to get a semantic system um, and I think you can be as much a naturalist about representations and content without thinking that you're going to have a story about how those things are made up from non-semantic pieces you know just in if you look a- across other branches of science it's not like people have gone across the board being able to reduce biology to chem to chemistry you know biology is sui generis it's certainly related to the chemical but no one has this complete story to tell about how the chemical pieces get put together to make an organism and i think we should accept that as a very clear possibility with um, representations and content as well what would a complete story look like because the what i might counter to that is that that's fair. Uh, like we don't have a complete story about what every unit is doing in an artificial neural network, etc. Um, and however, uh, it's desirable. Like, how are we going to make progress in understanding minds without some naturalizing uh, principles? Even you know, maybe not a step-by-step map- mapping that doesn't have to be isomorphic, but can transition. We don't need every granular discrete step along the way toward explanation but there might be useful overarching principles that go ahead yeah yeah so so i think you know answers to those questions you see you see them in in shay's book where he's talking about you know what is it about the systems that it's useful to give you know um representation positing explanations but what is it that they're doing that makes it, you know, that makes that practice um, workable and, and necessary. So we can tell story, well, give explanations of what it is in the life of an organism, what it's responding to in its environment, such that it needs to have mental states with content. But that's not being able to tell you, especially not in general unifying terms about how those non-semantic pieces build up to content but you can very much talk about content in natural situations and say well there's nothing you know spooky going on there but it's just that you're not you're not doing that um, fully fledged reduction so some philosophers have said that you know there's this kind of muggle i think it's called the muggle constraint which is that, you know, there can't be anything magical in uh, your explanation of how um, cognitive phenomena are produced or how behavior is produced. Um, And they say that because of this, you need to be able to explain how semantic content arises in step-by-step terms, in terms of naturalistic 
step-by-step terms. But it's not clear why um, that that seems like an awfully demanding constraint to me, and um, for the reasons that Masveda yeah. gives. Um, so you may well think that you know there are some very very complicated, messy set of factors that determine what specific content we have, and in particular that cut down on the indeterminacy. So what happens a lot with these simple theories of representational content is sort of saying you get a lot of indeterminacy and that seems that you're not really capturing the phenomena that you wanted. There's too much indeterminacy in the content. So when you're trying to think about the factors which are going to cut down on that indeterminacy and mean that this state is going to represent this and not this or this or this or this or that, and then you tend to appeal to various pragmatic factors and those tend to be very, very difficult to systematize. But there's no reason to think why those are Mm. somehow magical or spooky or there's anything non-naturalistic going on. It's just that if you were to give a theory of it, you know, you would never end and you would never be able to really understand it or generalize with it. Right. It's very much a case-by-case basis, sort of organism environment specific. And this is also in, in Bill Wimsett's causal thicket that we're dealing with. I, th- I mean, this is one reason why I, I rather like uh, Mark Picard's interactivism, uh, because it kind of goes down that pragmatic uh, road, uh, dealing with representations as well, that in the end, uh, you know, behavior is the constraint almost. Uh, however, it turns out, well, that's that's what the representation was <laughs> about you know so in in and that's so that's the kind of sense that um what you know what i really need is a theory on what will satisfy me as an as an an understander right because i realize i don't need to know what's going on with um all aspects of the representation but i do need some principles to grasp and to make sense of how it could be naturalized not exactly how it is but a likely story of how it could be because i want to know how the mental arises from how it how to how how to account for it from the physical right but does this put representation in the same boat as computation in in the in terms of uh accounting for it in the brain and as part of what the brain is doing right you know do, do we need to lean more on representation the higher the cognitive process we're dealing with whereas maybe with super low level, right at the sensory organs and a few synapses in, maybe that's not very representational, but then we get a little bit higher into memory, working memory, and uh, was it, what, what, despair uh, mm-hmm. when you're traveling with your children, you know, th- do those rely on representations more? So there's this research program, the kind of anti-representationalist yes. research program, um, and with lots of smart folks working in it, where they try to pick various cognitive capacities or various behaviors and give give explanations or models of them that don't involve representations. And they typically um, appeal to kind of dynamical systems models. So they think of people mm-hmm. as kind of oscillators, which are responding to things in their environment and such like. And um, that is quite powerful and can explain lots of stuff, but um, it tends to be stuff which is fairly close to the sensory motor boundaries. So it's kind of good at um, things like um, uh, finger wagging and things like that, where you can explain how um, uh, uh, people are able to you know, produce various kind of motor patterns and so forth. But um, those anti-representationalist research programs tend to struggle giving accounts of high level, high level thought 
uh, because high-level thought seems intrinsically representational. Um, and um, it's kind of been a been a, a sort of a an, an unsolved problem for for the anti-representationist program. So the the, mm-hmm. the the typical cases which are given against them is to account for kind of logical reasoning or yeah. logical reasoning, where it seems to be that you're representing things, you're representing numbers, you're representing relations. Yeah, but I would argue that even when you're talking about sensory responses, which are fairly peripheral, that they're still, you know, much more strongly driven by what's going on, you know, in the distal environment than what's proximal in the nervous system, that even then it makes sense to talk about them representing as opposed to just being causally driven by by the most proximal stimulus, by the most proximal input. That's true. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. So, yeah, uh, the kind of invariances and um, perceptual constancies seem to be kind of people draw on that kind of thing to say that, you know, we should think of the what's going on in the early perceptual system as, as representational. So, so bottom line, we have an optimistic uh, view moving forward on progress naturalizing representation mm-hmm. and mental, but we don't see the end point yeah. in the next month or so. I think it's a it's a combination of two things of progress with developing naturalistic theories and mm-hmm. just yes. stop worrying about it's, the problem so much. Yeah, it's not exactly. a philosophy. It's it's tackling it from both on ends the expect, <laughs> on the condition of just lowering expectations. <laughs> All right. Well, you've, that's a great place to end it, guys. No, but I, I do want to ask. So, so we do need to wrap up here. I, I realize uh, time wise, but um, one one thing I want to ask, and then and then I'll I'll finish up with a final question. Masrita, I'm I'm really looking forward to your book. When when the heck is your book going to be coming out about simplifying mm-hmm. the brain? Yeah, I'm actually sitting down to draft the final chapter in the next couple of weeks i have a very stringent self-imposed timetable on myself but then i still need to write the introductory chapters later in the summer and then i need to force all my colleagues to read the drafts to prevent me from publishing something stupid so (laughs) i'm aiming to submit it next year oh good well i i can't wait uh, for the book to come out um Mark, are you working on a new book? You got, I mean, everyone's writing books these days. You must have a book coming out as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm starting uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm starting my research leave and uh, I'm uh, working on um, defending a view, which is, I think, in accordance with uh, Mats Vida. So I'm really, mm-hmm. really looking forward to reading <laughs> her draft. And, uh, and, and it's also defending a form of uh, perspectivalism about um, the role of computation and cognition for 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 slightly different but related reasons to to, to Mats Vida. Well, that's great. So, um, you know, there is still plenty that we did not get to, obviously, but I do want to end uh, with just one question for you guys. And, um, well, maybe it's more than one question. So you, you both have thriving careers right now, at least from my perspective. Uh, and I'm wondering, do you feel like you're doing it right? And uh, I know this is a very terribly broad question. Do you feel like you're doing it right and and if so, how were you doing it wrong before? And then lastly, the last question on top of that is, uh, what trait do you wish you had more of as a philosopher? Masvita, let, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I've had so little feedback in the last year compared to normal when we just talk to people and go to places and actually 
you know, ask them at dinner, well, what did you really think of that? As opposed to, you know, the polite Zoom interaction that I have, mm. I have no sense now if I'm doing anything right. <laughs> 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 oh, I was hoping to end on an uplifting note, but yeah. So, okay. Do you, f- well, but just in terms of broader picture in your career, do you feel like you have the, re- with the, this is the, with the backdrop that you're both publishing a lot. You're both doing fantastic work right now. Uh, and I'm wondering if you feel like you're doing fantastic work right now. Do you feel like you're, you're approaching things the right way? Like, are you in the, a good flow state career wise and, and the way that you approach things? Do you, do you feel mm-hmm. that way? Hmm. it's it's hard to know like like I said that's I'm just spending a lot of time more time by myself writing than I normally would and it feels less constrained because of that but also more exploratory and experimental so that's why I'll be so curious to like hear from people what they make of it (laughs) Mark's gonna be like you've gone off the rails must be you've you've explored too far yeah what what about you, Mark? <laughs> yeah, so um, so yeah, I, I actually have similar feelings to Masveda, and and the past year has been has been really 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 tricky. Um, I think that um, you know, I, I think that feelings of uh, kind of dissatisfaction and frustration are, I think, are not unusual uh, for academics. Uh, I think that it's I would be think it'd be unusual to find someone who's kind of happy with the way in which they're working right now or is confident that they're on the right path. Um, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I love what I do. I love reading and working on what I'm working on. Um, but um, I often, you know, once I've written something, I realize, oh, I could have oh, written that a lot easier. I could have just... <laughs> Yeah. You know, why was I so inefficient in writing that? I feel that every podcast I do, I feel that way. Yeah, of so, course. Um, so, yeah, I wish that there was some way that I could work out. I could be more efficient and work out in advance what I should be, <laughs> what I should be saying. Um, and especially whenever you look at, uh, you know, these wonderful, super productive people who, you know, writing, you know, 20, but 30 books. you're both books. super productive. You're no, both being super productive. Yeah, if you look at, um, I don't know, you know, people writing hundreds of papers, you know, 70 books, then uh, you wonder, well, you know, it, the way in which they do that is that they probably just get it right first time. And um, uh, I wish I could get myself on. into that state. <laughs> is that, would, that, would that be your answer to the uh, what trait you wish you had more of? You could get it right the first time more often? <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea how to, how to change myself to do that. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. I would need to do some serious rewiring to, to be able to, to, to change should, myself into you should, that. You should take your own advice <laughs> and stop worrying so much about, yeah. the, uh, about trying to solve it, right? Take your own advice mm-hmm. for natu- uh, to naturalizing uh, uh, representations. Yeah, I, I, th- I often wish I could be more perfectionist. So, mm-hmm. More yeah. perfectionist. Yeah. Interesting. That's... A lot of people wish they yeah. could be less perfectionist, yeah. but you're going to go yeah. more perfectionist. Okay. That's yeah, not selling your book right. too well there. My book's going to be yeah. imperfect and sloppy and wander along exactly. paths that I shouldn't have wandered. <laughs> but yeah, whenever whenever I worry about it, I think that, you know, I f- focus on the, the stuff that uh, 
the, the journey really and it's enjoyable like the the process of intellectual inquiry that is the thing which is really really rewarding and why i got into this in the first place and yeah. uh, even if the results can be unsatisfactory <laughs> to your eye whenever they're produced uh the journey in the intellectual inquiry is, re- is, is 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 really worthwhile and really well uh, yeah really satisfying I- as, a, as a researcher yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I have to remind myself about the journey as well, because mostly what I feel is just friction in my own head. Like, why am I unable to wrap my head around these 12 ideas and synthesize them and make it feel more flowing? But then there are those moments, like recently in the past few weeks, there's a mountain uh, about half a mile from here, and I run to the mountain, and I run up the mountain, and I run down the mountain. And when I'm while I'm running, I'm these past few weeks, I've listened to both of you, for instance, and while I'm running up the mountain is when I'm listening listening well. And then as I r- run down the mountain, when I can breathe again, I, I, I pause it. And, and that's when I have these wonderful thoughts that, you know, kind of come and go. And it, like, mm-hmm. you know, like shower thoughts, right? And they feel like breakthroughs. And those few, like those moments are, mm-hmm. that's what makes it worth it, I think. Even though the rest of the time I just feel uh, <laughs> self-hatred, <laughs> Essentially, like I'm not good enough at it, etc. Well, we don't need to. Uh, don't, go, don't hate we, yourself. We should get off the psychology chair. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, there, there. I have a uh, pluralistic <laughs> stance on my my self uh, evaluation, I suppose. So, yeah. Well, this is as fun as I thought it was going to be. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. And uh, just to, the secret is, you guys are you were going to be in the same office, but now just a door is separating you uh, in in the building uh, that you both work in. So. Thanks for for dealing with that as well, and just thanks for for talking with me. Yeah, thanks thanks a lot for inviting us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, thank you very much, Paul. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-